The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. $2 trillion U.S. stimulus package coming out. That's equal to about 10% of the nation's total output. The question is, is it enough? Francis Donald, Managing Director, Chief Economist and Head of Macro Strategy at Manulife Investment Management, joins us to lend her thoughts. So, Francis, thanks so much for joining us. We're starting to get some initial uh, details about this stimulus plan. What is your early read as to kind of the scope and scale of this plan? Well, like almost every data point and policy move we get, unprecedented, huge, massive, but just like every other policy we've seen from other governments, it's not going to be enough to prevent a massive dislocation in this economy. We are still going to experience a recession, what I call a compressed recession in a very short period of time. This package is about mitigating just how bad that might be and preventing it from creating other spillovers that last an extended period of time. So for me, this doesn't really change how I think the next three months go. It does give me more hope that by the year end, we have seen a little bit more of that recovery. I'm not in V-shaped recovery. I'm in U-shaped recovery. Not sure how much the distinction matters. It's good news. It's not a savior. So a lot of people are looking ahead to initial jobless claims tomorrow. A lot of economists are just throwing up their hands and saying, we don't know. I mean, this seems unprecedented. The range of outcomes is so wide that it's very hard to make a forecast. What are you looking at to give you some sort of compass through this period? We have to look at a lot of different alternative data sets, things I've never looked at before, like subway ridership. How many people are there looking at open table reservations, looking at surveys that we maybe haven't seen before? This is really difficult to forecast. And there's a reason why the Fed threw up its hands and said, we're not giving you the summary of economic projections. Basically, the only way to do forecasting here is to take an economic model and break it push through a bunch of assumptions that are based on just various scenarios and hope it gives you some point forecast. But that is false precision. What we need to be doing now is thinking about uh, the progression, the quarter by quarter progression, and how does anything that happened in the next three months create longer term damage? I do think we need to realize that we can't and we probably will not unwind all of the damage that we see in the next three to six months, that there are structural changes that are coming from this. And most importantly, a lot of the policies that were put in place, monetary and fiscal, are not going to be unwound in three months. So we kind of have to distinguish here between what's going to rebound and what isn't. That conversation is so much more important than what is the GDP hit, what is initial jobless claims going to be. So what do you think some of the structural changes might uh, result out of this, Francis? The biggest one is if I'm opening a company right now, I'm thinking twice, three times about, do I want a global supply chain? We haven't just had one hit to global supply chains, the tariffs. We've now had a second, entirely different one. 
So if I'm opening a company, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I'm going to have to pay for domestic labor, which is more expensive, but that's a form of insurance. I also think that we're going to get a sense that people can work remotely and do not need to travel into downtown cores. That could change housing markets. It can change the way companies operate. It can change the push towards new and better technologies for remote working. These are the types of conversations that we need to have. Um, of course, the biggest one is we have now you know, expanded the Fed's balance sheet to something unprecedented. We now have deficits that will blow out across the entire world. And I don't think you're going to have anyone who says, we shouldn't have spent that amount of money. So even our notions of what's the appropriate role of a central bank and how much money should government spend is going to change as well. Francis, that's exactly where I wanted to go. This idea that the deficit is now going to double to where it was. You've got helicopters dropping money. You've got the Fed basically saying, we'll buy whatever you want with expectations that the Fed's balance sheet, which already is at a record high now, is going to at least double in the next 12 months, if not far sooner than that, to more than $9 trillion. At what point is this inflationary versus deflationary? So eventually that will create some inflation. And this is why I think we're seeing a steeper curve. It's why you're going to hear people say, I'm a seller of the 30-year, that inflation is coming. Um, This is why you're going to see people who like gold in this type of environment. But for the meantime, particularly in the next six months, we're going to have to deal with demand destruction. And in my view, that demand destruction is going to be so much more powerful than any sort of inflationary dynamics that come from these policies. We also have a very strong U.S. dollar, and that is a deflationary force. I don't think that strong U.S. dollar is going to unwind significantly this year. So, yes, do we need to think about inflation? Absolutely. Do we need to think about it in the next 12 months or even 24 months? I don't think so. So, Francis, you're talking about you know more of a U-shaped recovery. Do you, in fact... And- think that we will see a recovery in the third quarter? Is that going to be pushed out maybe more to the fourth quarter? This could be a a lower for longer type of uh, hit to the second quarter. I suspect you're going to see some seeds of the recovery by the third quarter. And by that, I mean, you will see shops open back up and some rehiring activity. Are we truly back online? Do we start to see an economy that even resembles where we were in January? Probably not till the fourth quarter. You know, we have a supply shock and then we have two types of demand shocks here. We have forced closures, which means even if you want to buy a latte at the coffee shop, you can't. And then you have this other type of demand shock, which is just confidence based, which is saying, you know, even if the store is open, I'm too afraid for my personal safety to go outside the house right now. A lot of these can be cleared up. Supply chains are already coming back online out of China. That's good news. You can press a button and or sign a paper and open up a segment of the economy. But it's probably going to take a little bit of time before we have people who are generally happy to go to concerts or movies again. That's a, more of a confidence shock. Those are really difficult to forecast. But you know, just thinking it through, I don't think we're all going to be going around shaking hands by June. Francis, just real quick here, I'm wondering how much of the economy is still online that's getting discounted, basically, that the American uh, business community hasn't gone to zero as people shop online and, uh, and order stuff online. Yeah, right. And, and we see a variety of different types of companies that are hiring because there's a segment of this economy that isn't just holding place, but is going to reaccelerate. And what they're seeing is just like you know, the full weakness of the economy isn't going to rebound. I suspect the strength in those particular industries, everything from telecoms to online shopping, they're not going to lose all of this stuff either as we continue to have this structural shift. So certainly we're going to see some front-loading activity in March. Watch grocery store sales 
for March. They're going to be through the roof, um, but it's going to be substantially offset by the significant amount of downward pressure we have from small businesses, restaurants, job losses. Um, those are going to significantly outweigh. Francis Donald, thank you so much for being with us. Francis Donald, Chief Economist and Head of Macroeconomic Strategy for Manulife Asset Management, joining us on the phone from Toronto. Really interesting to try to forecast what the society might look like on the other side of this. We don't know how long it's going to be, Paul, but there does seem to be a feeling things are going to be very different in certain ways, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And again, uh, her economic outlook, more of a U-shaped uh, recovery than some of the V-shaped uh, recoveries that we've seen come out of Wall Street over the last uh, three or four days. We've been hearing consistently about some of the growing strains on the healthcare system, particularly in New York City and Javits Center being outfitted with hundreds of beds in order to accommodate the influx of expected patients. Joining us now, someone with a lot of experience planning and existing within this type of ecosystem, Dr. Lena Wen, emergency physician, as well as a public health professor at George Washington University, previously serving as Baltimore's health commissioner. Dr. Wen, thank you so much for being with us. I want to just get a sense of a state of play. How close are we in New York City and some of the other epicenters to a an Italy-type situation where we end up with just hundreds of people dying a day? Well, if you talk to any of our frontline healthcare providers in New York and in other epicenters around the country, they will say that we are already at this breaking point. We are already seeing our hospital system stretched to capacity. And what's extremely worrisome is that our healthcare providers who are on the front lines don't even have the basic equipment that they need in order to protect themselves, which frankly is something that I never thought we would see in this country. I mean, it was just two months ago that we saw the images emerging from China of nurses who had to reuse their masks for several days at a time, doctors who had to fashion their own gowns out of garbage bags. And now we're seeing this playing out all over the country. First, we're rationing masks. Then we're going to run out of doctors. And then we're also going to run out of hospital beds and ICU beds and other critical capabilities that will keep patients alive. I mean, I hate to present this dire picture, but this is what's happening in our country due to lack of preparedness. But all is not lost. We do have an opportunity to ramp up production dramatically in this country through a coordinated national effort. And we need everyone to continue to do their part to do social distancing and other measures that can reduce the rate of transmission in these epicenters, but as critically in other parts of the country, too, to prevent every part of our country from turning into the China and Italy scenario that we have seen playing out. So, Dr. Wen, there has been some growing discussion over the last week or so that perhaps it's time to think about getting the country, quote unquote, back to work and perhaps uh, kind of open up the economy somewhat from your perspective on the healthcare side. How do you view that? I mean, I understand the desire to get back to normal because, frankly, right now, life is not normal at all. It's not imaginable compared to where we were a month ago or two months ago. 
But we also have to look at the reality of where things are. We can't navigate based on our wish list. We have to navigate based on the reality. And the reality is that we have this urgent need to stabilize our healthcare system. We have an urgent need to ramp up testing because unless we do that, we have no idea of where we actually are. We have case counts every day of the number of people who are infected, but we don't know how accurate these counts are. In fact, basically every public health expert I know thinks that these counts are far off because we just don't have the testing capability to understand what's happening in our country. So unless we can shore up our healthcare system, unless we can get real data about what's going on, we can't let up on really the only effective intervention that we have at this time, which is social distancing. I wish that this were not the case. Don't get me wrong. I wish that we had testing up and running. I wish that our hospitals were not overflowing. But given the situation that we're in, we can't let up or else we are going to have tens of thousands of people die, maybe even more, because of our own inaction. Dr. Wen, I'm wondering, right now we're looking at uh, a recommendation that anyone from New York quarantine themselves for 14 days if they travel outside of the state. How prevalent is your estimates, is the research currently, is the virus in the United States beyond New York? In other words, if some of the hot spots are contained, will that be enough to sort of stave off a crisis situation in the rest of the United States? It's a great question. I think the answer is that we don't know because we don't know the true prevalence in other communities. But there's reason to believe that you can do both of these things at the same time. So mitigation efforts, meaning mitigation in these hotspot areas, as well as containment in areas that probably are not yet so affected, although very likely they are much more affected than we think. But still, there is a chance at that. And I think as long as there's a chance, we should be trying to do both, trying to to um, do everything we can to bolster the healthcare system in these hotspots and to reduce the rate of, of transmission in other areas too. Dr. Lena Wen, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your learned perspective on this issue. Dr. Lena Wen is an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University. She previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner. So Lisa, still, I think what we're hearing from uh, Dr. Wen is that obviously uh, we are still at the you know relatively critical stages here, particularly in some of the hotspots. Uh, so perhaps a little bit premature to think about uh, opening up the economy. There was a story that caught my attention this morning about how New York hospital workers are basically forgoing tests to see whether they have the virus. If they don't have symptoms, they're being told just to come to work because A, they're needed, and B, there aren't enough tests. And it just sort of highlights the fear uh, felt by a lot of people currently in the healthcare system. And I will tell you personally, I've spoken to people who are nurses in this situation, and It is a frightening situation at this point, and it's expected to peak in about two weeks. So a lot of concern about whether people who could potentially be saved will be able to save as well as the lives of a lot of the people who are on the front lines as hospital workers. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. 
More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Our next guest, Hans Olsen. He's the chief investment officer at Fiduciary Trust Company in Boston with about $14 billion uh, under management. Hans, thanks so much for joining us. What do you make of the market performance over the last couple of days? Are we kind of forming maybe a little bit of a bottom here, or is this just a dead cat bounce? No, I think we're in the very early stages of uh, a bottom formation here, uh, with the Federal Reserve's action being joined uh, by the Congress's actions. I think we have the conditions now to start to put a double line underneath this episode. So I think we're in the early stages. There's definitely um, some some probably shockingly uh, difficult uh, headlines we'll have to deal with in the week ahead. But most importantly, I think we've got the, the beginnings of a base uh, being formed. You know, there's a question here, how you get some conviction at a time of such uh, lack of conviction when it comes to economic forecasts. I'd love to get your sense. How do you gain a sense of uh, assurance behind your call that we're getting stability and it's time to perhaps buy? Well, I think you have to look at the, the credit market because in, in our commercial lives, the, the sort of the wellspring of all the activity starts with credit, right, with money changing hands and the ability to get uh, credit to, to transact. Uh, and, you know, what we've seen over the last week or so is severe dislocation right out through, right across the uh, credit landscape. And what we're starting to see now is some normalization beginning to happen in that, that space, whether it be uh, yield spreads on uh, uh, investment grade bonds or high yields starting to come down. Uh, once that we start to get a, a return to normalization there, that will flow through to the equity markets. And I think they're both happening at the same time at the moment. So, Hans, one of the areas that's been a little bit troubled, obviously, in the credit side of the business is the mortgage markets. What's your take on what's going on there and kind of what the response has been from the Fed? I think the Fed's uh, efforts have been really good uh, in, in addressing the primary markets. And then we, need, we get into the secondary markets, uh, especially in uh, commercial-backed uh, uh, commercial mortgage uh, paper and the like. Uh, I think there needs to be some help there on the part of the Federal Reserve. They're, they need to basically supply capital to that part of the market so that um, uh, some liquidity is there and we get a sort of a, uh, the beginning of a return to normal trading. It's not there yet. There's still some distressed sellers, some liquidations occurring. Uh, but if the Fed turns its considerable um, uh, resources there, that will start to uh, uh, tamp down as well. Hans, uh, we're speaking with Hans Olson, Chief Investment Officer of Fiduciary Trust Company in Boston. Hans, I'd love to get your sense of how you go about buying in this situation, given the fact that it's very hard to depend on any actual data that we've previously relied on, like earnings or estimates, to get a sense of what the financial picture is. Yeah, I, I think that's a two-part process. One, you have to sort of look through to to the other side of this. So if we if we fixate on the data that we see in front of us right now, we're always uh, two to three weeks behind the curve. Uh, and, uh, you know, whether it's the PMI and the like, only actually with the PMI, some of them are just beginning to, to, to reflect the uh, sort of the severity of the drawdown. But I think if you focus through uh, and, and to a recovery when we get a 
return to a bit of normalcy, then I think it's just a matter of having exposure. It's really more of a beta play than it is trying to pick an individual stock here or there. Um, things have sold off so so systemically, and in some cases in such a disorderly way, uh, just exposure to markets now uh, in the base formation is, I think, the first step into a successful um, reemergence of this from this period. So, Hans, for the brave of heart that are willing and able to look to the other side of this, where should they be looking? Well, I think the U.S. Uh, is the first place. I mean, we, we have liked international names for, for some time, um, but it's hard to imagine the, Amer- uh, the global economy emerging uh, from this global slowdown or this global crisis without the U.S. leading the way. We tend to be the most vibrant uh, and most creative economy. Uh, and, you know, it would, be, it would be a break with history for us to come out of a global slowdown without the U.S. Uh, leading the way. So I think the U.S. is the first place to be. I think uh, credit is beginning to look pretty interesting. Uh, I, I, I would go credit first and then equity second, uh, just because credit has to recover before equities can recover. So if you have incremental money, um, splitting it between those two sectors of the capital markets would seem to me to be a good idea. All right. So we're in credit because we've seen an outperformance in the past couple of days in investment grade as the Federal Reserve backstops that asset class. But high yield has continued to underperform as people expect the default rate to spike in the wake of the, uh, of the shutdowns. The places that we're looking at uh, right now haven't pulled the trigger, but we're, we're sort of doing the work on uh, would be levered loans. Those are down trading in the 70s now, and those are implying, uh, implying default rates and recovery rates that uh, probably won't come to pass given all the extraordinary efforts uh, on the part of the central bank and now uh, Congress. And then once that starts to catch a bit, I think we'll see a a bit of a recovery in high yield. Already, though, high yield uh, uh, OAS is is down from uh, the the peak that achieved just a couple of days ago. So, Hans, it's interesting um, looking out to the other side. Are there sectors uh, in the economy that you would look at? Would you look at the ones that got really crushed, whether it be leisure or the airlines, transports, that type of thing? I think that for for us – where we would look first would be areas like um, um, industrials. Uh, actually, there's pretty good picking in technology, although that hasn't sold off as much. Energy, some of the top names in energy might make a lot of sense here. They have the wherewithal, the balance sheet, uh, the depth of business, and the, the access to resources uh, in order to lead out, uh, lead our way out when we start to get a bid for, for energy prices. So it would be energy, it would be healthcare, it would be uh, financials at some point here in the States are going to look pretty interesting. So some of the areas that have gotten hit harder, but, it's, but focusing really on the larger companies in, that, uh, in those sectors, because those are the ones that will lead out. It, 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 in an environment like this, it's hard to see how the smaller companies lead us out of this. Hans Olsen, thank you so much for being with us and take care of yourself. Hans Olsen is Chief Investment Officer, a fiduciary trust company in Boston. Volatility in the markets, a little bit of weakness here today after that a tremendous and historic rally yesterday. Was that the start of something new or just a bear market bounce? Uh, we have Aaron Dunn, co-director of Value Invec- uh, Equity Investing and Portfolio Manager at Eaton Vance uh, with us. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Give us your thoughts of kind of what we're seeing in the market over the last several days. Obviously, tremendous volatility, but what are some of the themes you're looking at? 
Well, I think you, you've gone through a couple of weeks here where uh, you've had a lot of technical issues in the market, whether it be sort of uh, uh, leverage calls, et cetera, that are exacerbating massive moves in the market here. Um, I think more technical factors have been driving the market. What I think we're starting to see, though, is a little bit more of a uh, an attention to fundamentals, and it's really what we're trying to uh, you know to uh, sift through for ourselves in terms of. Um, how we come out on the other side of this. And, you know, this is an unprecedented time. It's a downturn that uh, many struggle to foresee. Um, and so I think it's sifting through the winners and losers on the other side of this. I don't think it's going to be uh, back to business as usual in a month or two. I think there's going to be some lasting impacts. I mean, I think the, um, the American public is probably uh, at some point here going to get very anxious to get out and get back to life as normal. So um, sort of looking at that and saying, who are, who are the big winners here? Uh, and, and maybe a little bit of a new world. Who are some, uh, you know, that I think are going to struggle once we get on the other side of this? Aaron, that's exactly where I wanted to go. I was looking at some of your research ahead of this, and you were saying, don't look at the next round of earnings. It's no longer a leading indicator. Look beyond that. But it enters the realm of theory, of sort of philosophy, of what will sort of be the most missed aspects of people's lives. So how do you go about kind of handicapping the big winners on the other side when you really cannot look at the numbers to determine that now? Yeah, I think the numbers are so in flux that, you know, the next quarter's earnings, I mean, you had basically half a quarter in the books if it's a calendar quarter earnings. And we had Nike come out today that had some excellent results driven by the rebound in China and some of the online uh, sales they were able to to book. And I think that's one differentiator for retail companies. Um, for us, we look, we want to really look at, because the current environment is in such flux and earnings numbers are in such flux, and a company with a calendar quarter that has a call in late April I don't know that there's a ton of informational value in what they're going to report, right? They're going to say it's really challenging. Uh, we want to make sure we have liquidity to make it through. Uh, don't know when people are you know, really going to go back to life as usual. So there is some fundamental uh, look here on what liquidity looks like. And that's one thing we've also been very focused on. Uh, we like to own quality companies with, with low leverage uh, at Eaton Vance. And so we're looking at make sure our companies have plenty of liquidity to get to the other side of this. And so some some things we're looking at are, you know, very liquid, well-capitalized retailers, um, looking at derivative plays on uh, on the other side of this. So, um, you know, maybe not owning capital-intensive airlines or cruise ships. We're not really interested in going there. We're not interested in something that's going to get a bailout. But there's some derivative plays on the other side of this that are interesting. Um, you know, I think one example, one is we, we look at as, as uh, plain vanilla as this may be, we look at corrugated box manufacturers, right? I mean, Amazon uh, is is still delivering. Um, they've announced a big increase in employee base. So plays like that where you can see some fundamentals that come back much quicker, they actually go through this with smooth sailing. Stuff like that I think is extremely interesting here. And looking at kind of 2021, 2022, what later this year when the market looks forward, what is, what's a uh, normalized earnings number look like? That's how I think you sift through today's environment to the other side of this is looking at what the impacts are today, but looking at what the impacts are for 2021, 2022 is going to really embed a lot of upside in portfolios today. Paul, I so love Aaron, that. Go long boxes yeah, and go exactly. long, go long uh, pajamas because that's what people are doing right now. Exactly. Exactly. So, 
Right. And so, Aaron, as co-director of value equity investing, how's value done in this market route? It's been very tough, and I'll tell you why. It's, I mean, I think we were looking at coming into this, you had really a couple of years where growth outperformed value massively, and that's because you had these big growth tech companies that had excellent balance sheets. And so in our view, as we went through last year and into early this year, the market got very narrow in a lot of these big tech companies. I mean, look how big Apple was in the index. Look how big um, some of these other companies were in the index. Um, they, you know, they, they drove so much of the upside relative to the rest of the market. The value benches tend to be very, uh, have much more of a cyclical grouping, and that's happened over the last couple of years as energy's fallen more into value, you know, materials have fallen more, industrials. So the value bench tends to be very, um, more, a little more cyclical. Now it has, does have more exposure to defensive groups like utilities, REITs, et cetera. So if you look at performance of value, say, versus growth, if that's your comparison, values underperformed growth quite a bit. Um, but I also think that's, the opportunity here is a lot of these spaces that have really been um, decimated have the opportunity to sort of uh, to, to rebound the most on the other side of this as we get a little more uh, visibility in the cyclical recovery here. Aaron Dunn, thank you so much for being with us. Take care of yourself uh, and your family. Aaron Dunn, co-director of value equity investing and portfolio manager at Eaton Vance, talking about the road forward, how you even start to sort of game out what might be the other side, Paul. I mean, honestly, the concept of even collective working and the concept of exercise. I mean, you just have to wonder how much will go back to the same versus be fundamentally changed. Yeah, it's really, it's going to be interesting to see how we all come out on the other side of this. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.